You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's guest, a former Army Staff Sergeant who had a major part and a major role in getting Afghan allies out of Afghanistan after the fall in 2021. He also has a book out about it. We'll get to that or a book coming out, I should say, about it uh, that we will get to here in just a few moments. But first, as always, please uh, continue to follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground and Hazard Ground Podcast. I'm sure you guys are probably skipping through most of these announcements all the time because I say the same things every week. But still, I want you guys to do so. Uh, Give us a thumbs up on that YouTube channel. Hit the like button there. Hit the subscribe button as well. Follow us there. Make sure you watch all the episodes. Uh, leave the comments. We'll get back to you as soon as we can on, on the comments. Please continue to leave them there. Leave comments and Apple reviews. Give us five stars. Tell us why you love the show. We appreciate that as always. And of course, please continue with our promotion with Amazon. Go to our website, hazardground.com. Click on the Amazon button up at the bottom of the homepage. It'll redirect you to Amazon. You can do all of your normal Amazon shopping. And whatever you guys spend, we'll get a percentage of it. And then I'll donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the show. So with the holidays right around the corner, please make sure if you're going to do some Amazon shopping, go to hazardground.com first. Easiest way to support veterans charities just by doing something as simple as doing uh, going to hazardground.com first and hitting the Amazon button because we get part of what you guys spend. So we certainly appreciate all the love and support there as well. And, uh, Continue to uh, leave us with any messages if you'd like. Go to our website again, hazardground.com. Hit the contact us button. And uh, if you guys have any guest suggestions, always love to hear from you guys. Appreciate you guys giving us great ideas and more people to put on this show and grow this Hazard Ground community. So, again, hazardground.com, the place to go. All right, this week's guest, as I mentioned a moment ago, a former Army staff sergeant who spent six years in the Army with one deployment to Afghanistan. And then uh, after the fall of Afghanistan in 2021, uh, with a group of other American former soldiers, veterans, intelligence assets, legislative aides, an ad hoc group put together, worked to form what we knew as the hashtag Digital Dunkirk, uh, which helped get Afghan allies out of Afghanistan after the fall, fleeing the Taliban, um, and along with all those Marines who were at the gate at Hamid Karzai International Airport and everything that changed on those fateful days. The name of that book, that is coming out, or will be out here shortly, I should say. Death at Abbey Gate uh, is uh, the name of the book here, and it is Michael Cook joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Michael, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Uh, look, uh, and I'll tell you, just as I said a moment ago, you know, appreciate you reaching out to us. Um, you know, again, go to hazardground.com and click on the Contact Us button because uh, yeah, we, we've told some of this story already, uh, or at least different aspects of it, um, from people who have tried to get Afghan allies out and are working on doing it. And um, I I think it's incredibly pivotal. Um, we seem to have forgotten Afghanistan already. I mean, we forgot Afghanistan was actually going on for a solid 10 years until we officially decided to depart. And then, uh, lo and behold, after everything had happened in the fall of Afghanistan, we left ourselves in, in quite the mess. Uh, and, and frankly, you know, call it as it is, abandoned a lot of those people who stood by us through bullets, bombs, blood, and everything else. Uh, to help America and help our American interests. And uh, we cut the cord all too quickly and those people didn't deserve to be left behind. Um, you know, I know personally for me, and we'll, we'll get into this more later, but, you know, my interpreter in Iraq, I was very happy after I had left when he had emailed me and told me that he was leaving Iraq and getting out uh, and never had to go back. And, and you know, there's a sense of uh, 
relief because those people put their life on the line. Those are the people you couldn't bring home with you. Right. Uh, so incredibly, incredibly important mission. And uh, I'm excited to read the book. I'm excited to to see what you guys have put together and, and, and hear all about the details of this whole thing, because social media told us that some of you guys were out there, but guess what? Um, nobody really gave a rip. Honestly, mm-hmm. they just didn't. Unless you had a vested interest in saving those folks, generally not a lot of America cared. Sure. We were more concerned about putting blame on why Afghanistan fell. We were more concerned about, you know, assigning political blame and things of that nature and who did what and who made this decision and everything else and what politician thought this and who said that. And, you know, at the end of the day, what you did was humanitarian. It was the right thing to do and it was needed. Yeah, well, I appreciate you saying that. And, you know, it's it's so important to keep these conversations going um, because there's still so many people that are that are trapped there under the Taliban. You know, people that bled with us for 20 years, stood by our side, um, were made promises uh, for safety if they helped us uh, and then left behind. Um, so the clock's ticking on those guys. Um, and, you know, the, the most recent numbers put out from No One Left Behind um, is that there's only about 13,000 SIVs, special immigrant visas remaining to be given. Uh, and there's about 149,000 applicants left. So 149,000 people uh, potentially that we promise safety to. Um, and a, a large majority of them are going to get left behind. I mean, just sickening, disheartening, whatever word you want to choose. All right. Well, let's start with your personal story as um, you got into the whole army late, late into the game. huh? Uh, when did you get in yeah. and why? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Everyone always starts with that question. So, yeah, a little little different um, story for me. Joined the Army at, um, let's see, 26, 27. I think it turned 27 in basic training, um, you know, which, which was interesting and fun. I had a little uh, different perspective of going through the whole process than everybody. But, um, yeah, so I grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, went to college out there, uh, ended up joining the military after college. It was just something I, I kind of felt like I always wanted to do. Uh, grew up playing team sports, playing hockey in high school and college. And uh, so I think after college, I kind of missed that uh, team atmosphere and just being a part of something a little bigger than yourself. Right. So I started the process of looking into the military, um, kind of came down to the Marine Corps or, uh, uh, or the Army for me. Um, the Army said I could start as an E4, where the um, Marine Corps said I had to start as an E2 just based on my my education. So kind of made it an easy decision for me to jump into the army. Um, so I spent six years in the reserves uh, as a engineer uh, with one deployment to Afghanistan in 2019 and 2020, kind of right at the end there uh, as the drawdown was, was starting to begin um, and then got out just last year. Uh, and now I'm right back in Michigan. What, uh, what made you become an engineer? Yeah. So I'd done uh, that type of work in the civilian sector before joining the military. So I'd done a lot of construction work. So it just kind of felt like it'd be an easy fit for me uh, just to jump right in. Were you physically ready for basic training? Yeah, I think so. I mean, basic training's <laughs> not that hard physically. I mean, it, it's a challenge physically for sure. I mean, but 2020, you know, 2019 basic training and 1999 basic training. Yeah. Was- I'm sure they were a lot different. <laughs> um, so, you know, it was it was physically challenging uh, as it is for anybody, I think, but not anything you can't overcome. Um, it's more of a mental challenge than anything, as everyone always says. Uh, but, yeah, I felt prepared for that. And and honestly, especially looking back now is just a great time uh, and met some great, great people and some lifelong friends out of it. And obviously some funny stories. Yeah, I was going to say, when you get there, I mean, obviously you're the old guy, yeah. right? Everyone looks at you and go, who's the old guy? Mm-hmm. Um, what's that like basically with kids who are almost 10 years younger than you? 
Yeah, I mean, I th- one of my very first days there, um, one of the drill sergeants comes up to me and he's just like, where the fuck were you five years ago during the war when my friends were dying? I'm just like, well, I was, you know, hanging out on the beach hey, in California. <laughs> like, uh, man, it's, it's that's that kind of stuff bothers me. Like, that's not, sure. I get it, you're trying to be a hard ass, um, but, you know, to belittle the idea that someone chose to serve later than somebody else uh, is a, is a, is a jerk thing to do, but I'm not going to, you know, grind gears on that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, look, uh, my response, I would have been, could, could not be here at all. Could still be sure. on the beach. Yeah, you know, exactly. Like, I, mean, I don't Anyway, so I don't know why I got off on that tangent, but, um, so he looks at you and says that, and you're thinking what? Uh, I, I mean, I'm immediately thinking like, what am I doing here? You know, it's just like that, that same feeling everyone gets their first couple of days of basic training. It's like, I think I made a huge mistake, but um, you know, you put your head down for 10 weeks and you get through it. Um, and then you graduate and you're, you move on with your life. What was the hardest part of it for you? Uh, man, basic training. I don't know that anything was so challenging as to, I mean, I guess as an older guy, um, just having a zero control of your life is, can be frustrating. Right. Um, as an 18 year old, maybe you're a little more susceptible to someone telling you what to do all the time. But as a 27 year old, that was a little more challenging. Um, but again, you know, just you put your head down, you know, it. you know, this is just a moment in time, you know, that graduation day is going to come. So you just get through it and move on. Yeah. Um, any sort of uh, uh, mentorship interactions with some of these young kids that you I keep calling them young kids. I mean, they are young kids, but mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I'm sure at some point in time, one of them, one of the, the 18, 19 year old privates turned around and asked you what you were doing there. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. I mean, at, at that point you're all equals, right? You're, you're just like scum. Uh, you're nobody and you're not even a soldier yet. But um, yeah, I think, you know, I helped a couple guys through and some guys helped me through, you know, they're, you're going to have, you know, a, a, a downtime at basic training because it just sucks. You know, it's 10 weeks of just suck. Um, so you have to be able to lean on the guys a little bit and they're going to lean on you. So I think it goes both ways. Was there anything that you learned or took from that younger crowd that you were sort of surprised that, you know, stuck with you? Yeah. I mean, I think just the, you know, the determination and to me, if you're there, you know, you're doing the right thing in my book, right. You're, you're serving your country. Not, there's a lot of guys there that didn't have to be there. I had a guy in my basic training, um, that was an MIT grad. He did not need to be there. Oh. Right. Um, I had a guy that was going uh, to be a surgeon. Uh, he did not have to be there. So there's a lot of guys that were there for the right reasons, uh, and just wanted to serve their country. So, you know, if, if you do that, you're, you're good in my book. Yeah. I mean, phew, MIT grad. Yeah. Yeah. We get them from all walks of life. Don't we? Mm-hmm. What was yeah, he, he was going to do after after basic i think he was going to be some, something in intelligence i'm not sure what the mos was exactly but that's you know makes sense the next john nash a beautiful mind right yeah uh, right something like that either that or goodwill hunting one or the other uh that's the only thing i know about mit regardless <laughs> uh, <laughs> so when you finish um what's is it like this sense of relief that it's over and and you feel like you accomplished something or was just in a kind of check the block moment for you? No, I did. I did feel like I accomplished something, you know, I, I joining the military was something I'd always been to do. Um, just so to know that I did it and I accomplished that small goal, even though it was just a, a fraction of, you know, what I was going to have to do in the military, it felt good. Um, so then, so graduated basic training, move on to AIT is what it's called in the army advanced, um, uh, individual training. Um, so for engineer school, went down to, um, 
Gulfport, Mississippi oh, uh, to train with anymore. Uh, so it depends what your uh, MOS is exactly. Is okay. gotcha. Yeah, your designation is. So I went to train with the CBs. Um, ah, construction guys. Yep. Yep, exactly. Um, so I went down there for seven weeks. You know, it's a little bit easier, uh, a little less rules. I'm going to basic training. And then after that, you just go back to your normal life and go to your unit. Do you think that, <laughs> excuse me, do you think that 19-year-old you, 19-year-old you would have survived basic training the same way 27-year-old you did? Uh, yeah, probably. I mean, physically, yes, maybe. Um, I don't know that I would have had the appreciation for it. I don't think mentally I was ready for that back then, you know, um, at that point I was, you know, just getting ready to go to college. Cause I thought that's just what you had to do, you know? Um, so I went to college and then after college, I moved out to California, um, to start working and just kind of wanted to be a beach bum for a while. So I don't think I was in the mental space, um, at that point in time in my life to, to go and serve and join the military. So I honestly, I'm glad that I waited, uh, to when I did. So now when you, when you signed up for the guard, did you think about you, was combat in your mind? I mean, Iraq is already over at this point in time. And again, like I said, Afghanistan was pretty much forgotten about. Did you think that you were going to end up going anywhere? No, I mean, and you know, I didn't join as, um, you know, a combat MOS. I joined as an engineer. Right. So I kind of knew that, you know, most high likelihood I was not going to see combat, probably a high likelihood I wouldn't deploy at all. Um, but again, you never really know with either of those things, you know, when you sign up. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think I had a pretty good idea that, um, maybe I'll deploy and maybe I'll go somewhere really cool. And I had always wanted to go to Afghanistan. I mean, I had Afghanistan in the back of my mind when I did sign up, like that's where I wanted to go. I wanted to, you know, see that beautiful country. I wanted to go check out the culture there. Um, but wasn't sure, obviously if, if you're going to get that chance, you never know. Um, but yeah, I, I knew there was a, a strong likelihood that I was not going to see combat and that was fine with me. So, uh, you're, again, you, you get back from AIT, you go back to your reserve unit. When does the deployment, what, what year and month in this? And then when does the deployment actually happen? Yeah. So I go back to my unit for probably a year and a half to maybe push in two years. Um, and then we get deployment orders. Um, so we go over to Kuwait first. So we're at, um, well, what's your first thought when you hear that you're going, uh, I was excited. I, you know, I was one of the guys that wanted to go. Uh, and there was kind of a mixture in the company, you know, a lot of guys were excited and wanted to deploy and that's what they were there for. Um, then in the reserves, especially you get the guys that do not want to go anywhere. They're there for the benefits. They're there to, you know, for whatever reason, uh, for schooling or anything. And those guys were not happy. Right. Uh, and a lot of those guys didn't deploy and were able to get out of it. And really, know, yeah. Um, and I was fine with that. You know, you don't, you don't want to bring those guys with you. Right. Um, you want the guys to go with you that want to be there. And, you know, that, that's probably something a lot of people don't know is from a, in the military community you, on reserves, there's a lot you can get away with. Like if you don't want to deploy, you don't have to deploy. There's ways out of it. I, I can't say that's the case for active duty. I don't know. I'm guessing that's not, oh, the, it's case. not the case <laughs> for active duty. And, and it's, it's not the case for even the guard to a certain extent. I mean, look, yeah. Yeah, I think I was telling this story the other day that, uh, you know, in my position as a colonel, like they asked me if I wanted to take certain deployments and I'm like, no, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Now, if my unit had gotten called up and the slot that I was in and the unit, I, you, I, you would have never heard a peep out of me. Yes, I was going. Okay. Sure. That's, that's the deal. But for a random spot for a random deployment that wasn't mine, you know, uh, if I don't have to, at this point in my career, I'm, I'm not going to, and, and, you know, people can argue with me if they want, but I don't, I don't feel like I should have to go, you know, sure. like I, I, 
been popped twice and, and not saying that that's enough. I just merely saying my unit was called up to go. So I went, I didn't try to weasel out of that because it was a unit thing. Uh, You know, we have so many, you know, quote deployments around that people go on and look to go on and tours of duty and things of that nature. They'll find somebody, you know? So I think there's a slight difference there, but could be splitting hairs. Yeah. That's weird. Um, I would never, and I look, if I was the commander of that unit and I found people didn't want to go, I would go to the command forum and say, just let them stay home. I don't I, I want to deal with the headache downrange of somebody who doesn't want to be there because it makes things a thousand times worse. Exactly. It's harder. Yeah. So you don't, you don't want them there. Write whatever you want on their NCOER or you let it, just let them stay home. Just find somebody who wants to go and wants to be there and is going to do the work and things will be a lot easier because you can do more with less. Yeah. So, and you know, when we get back, like, those guys aren't treated well, you know, the guys that didn't, oh, yeah. didn't come and, you know, we all go and we come back They're They're certainly outcasts for the rest of their career. Yeah. Uh, that, that's not a scarlet letter you want to have. No. Um, you know, again, there's voluntary deployments and there's involuntary deployments. When your unit gets called up, it's involuntary. So yep. uh, everybody go. That said, um, do you know exactly what your mission is when you, before you get over there or no? No, I mean, as engineers, you know, we know we're going to be doing some sort of like, building or security work or, you know, something gotcha. hands-on like that. Um, but we don't, we have no idea where we're going or, or what we're going to be doing. So we deploy as a company, um, but then we get split up, uh, you know, after a week or two in um, Kuwait, we get into Bagram, Afghanistan. And from there we get split up uh, into platoons, into squads, into teams, just all over the place. Um, so anywhere from, you know, a two, two man element up to a, a platoon size element at, you know, certain outposts um, or fobs all over the country. So, um, so me personally, I spent a, uh, about three days at Bagram uh, and then got pushed up North to Mazar Sharif to a NATO German NATO base uh, called Camp Marmel. So I was there with my platoon. Um, we were there for probably three or four months. I, I want to say, uh, and that's really kind of where my, the story of my book starts. Um, because there on Camp, Mar- Camp Marmel, I meet my friends Abdul and Mohammed, who are contractors. And um, before we get down that road, I just kind of want to set, set some more of the stage here. So, yeah, sure. Yeah, to Afghanistan when? Like what, in 2019, what month? Uh, November okay. 2019. Um, and again, as CBs, you're doing construction. It's not rocket science or anything like that. They're, you know, and, and for the most part, you're relatively safe the entire time, right? Like yeah. There's, there's not over the course of the deployment, you were, were no real danger, correct? No. Yeah. I mean, if, maybe a couple uh, IDF yeah, times at Bagram, yeah. but that's, uh, you know, didn't even get out of bed. You feel very safe. <laughs> yeah. That, that's about the extent of it. And, 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 you know, just for the listening audience, the story is more about, you know, getting everything out uh, down, you know, after the fact. But the time downrange is important because you get to, you, you get a scope and understanding of what life is like over there and certainly what, uh, what everybody is up against. Now, I'm just curious while you were there. What were you guys hearing about an exit of Afghanistan in general, if anything at all? Yeah. So the Doha agreement obviously uh, started getting talked about when we were there. Um, we were following closely online as President Trump and the administration was you know, working with the Taliban to um, create that uh, truce and what that was going to look like. So we knew it was coming, um, didn't exactly know what that was going to look like um, or when. I mean, when I was there in 2019, 2020, I think there was only like, a few thousand troops at Bagram when I was there, which, you know, if you've been to Bagram, that's nothing. I mean, the place is huge. It's like a city and it just felt like a ghost town. So for the guys that were there with me that had been there on previous deployments, it was, you know, it felt very weird to them that it was just like deserted essentially. 
Yeah. Um, so, you know, when you get out to the outpost, you don't really see that um, because there's nobody out there anyway. But um, so, yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing I noticed was, you know, the Afghans um, that we worked with or, or knew from around base, you know, they were the ones getting nervous, right? Because we were going to go home when we were going to go home and it didn't really matter to us. Um, and again, they, they were used to that. Um, right. Former, a former guest on the show, Mike Jason and a good mentor of mine, um, once said and coined it quite aptly, we didn't fight a 20 year war in Afghanistan. We fought 21 year wars in Afghanistan. Yep. They're used to us coming in and going out every 12 months, coming in, going out, coming in, going out. They knew that we weren't there for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just knew that we were there in whatever faction we were there. And it was time for us to go at some point. So they always had the knowledge that we were leaving. They were yeah. ready much more than we were. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, a lot of these Afghans, you know, started talking to us and they're like, Hey, like, you know, we know you're going home, but if the U S leaves, like we are in trouble. So, you know, we had a lot of Afghans coming up to us being like, Hey, you know, please don't leave Afghanistan. Like as if we had any sort of control over the situation. Right. But you could just see, call the white house. (laughs) Yeah. They could see the writing on the wall. That's what I should say. Um, they knew way better than us what was going to happen as soon as, you know, our boots left the ground there. Yeah. Again, which is, uh, um, disheartening is funny. And you didn't know this. I've, I've told this several times on the show that I was there for the last year of Iraq. Uh, and, and I can remember how one, it was a whole year process. It wasn't a month. It was a year for us to get out of there. And even at that, um, you know, there were, there were oh sixes and flag officers with their claws in the rug, like cats, like not wanting to leave. Like, please don't take us out of here. Please, please, please. We want to stay. We love the money. Uh, I hate my wife. No, I, I kid. Um, but <laughs> But beyond that, it's like one of those things where, you know, you talk about the drawdown and as it got smaller and smaller and smaller, I I was one person who would routinely advocate, like, close the PX, close all these food shops, close everything. The sooner you start taking the amenities out, that's the quicker that everybody's leaving. Mm -hmm. You know, like uh, we we all came there on that last deployment to do nothing but leave, survive and leave. So the only two missions. So, you know, um, they could have done it a lot quicker, but they took their sweet ass time slowly getting out of there. Now, in retrospect, you'd say they played it perfectly. Takes a year to get out of there. If you do it the right way, safely, you do it, try to do it in under 30 days. Guess what happens? Bad stuff. So uh, I certainly understand that notion of things looking different and you can see, you know, you drive by a certain area and the post, Oh, that thing's gone. Wow. Oh, okay. We actually are leaving. You know, like it just started to wake your mind up a little bit that, you know, the, the, the the culture of things was changing. Mm -hmm. Um, in that time, what was kind of the the Afghans' role with you guys specifically? Yeah, I mean, there's there was a bunch of Afghans on base. So, um, you know, whether they were contractors or interpreters or whatever, there's or, or they were just working at the chow hall or whatever. That you know, we have interactions with Afghans everywhere. Um, the Afghans that I talk about in my book uh, and my friends um, Abdul and Muhammad were contractors. So, as engineers, um, you know our primary focus is building stuff. And if you go through proper channels of trying to order materials when you're, you know, way out in Northern Afghanistan, it can take the the military or the army many weeks to get you supplies, or you can go through, you know, guys like um, Abdul Muhammad and they can get stuff the next day. So we worked with them pretty heavily on our job sites, um, just getting whatever materials that we needed. Um, Now were all your sites internal to the base or were they external? uh, Yes. Yes, they were all internal um, wherever we were for the most part. We were using a lot of Afghan contractors as well to help build it. 
yes. Um, so, some some projects were run specifically by Afghans. Some were run by us, uh, and then um, some projects, you know, were, were both. And um, but they would also help, you know, get us materials even on the jobs that we were working exclusively. How good were they at their jobs? Um, very good. Um, I don't think OSHA would have liked the way that they worked, um, <laughs> but uh, they were very fast. So it's it's uh, they worked way faster than we did for sure. You know That's they're cool. they're getting like pulled up on cranes and you know flying around and uh, welding without any glasses or uh, masks on. I mean anything you can think of that's dangerous. They were doing it, but they worked fast. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah. Okay. So as you're starting to work, like you know, as soon as you get on ground, is this like an everyday interaction now with these folks? For the most part, yeah, yeah, we're we're around them constantly. I mean, they really did become friends. Well, um, that's, we, that was my next question. At what point in time? Because this happened with me and my interpreter, right? Um, I had a couple initially, and then I finally settled into one that you know um, he 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 wanted to go by Bubba. He didn't want anybody to know his real name, so we all called him Bubba. Nice. Um, and uh, uh, you know, th- it, it comes to a point in time where you know you start you start being around them every single day that you can't help but just develop a relationship and a friendship with them. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and, and it became one of those things where it's like, Hey, you know, we're going to get together tonight and have some beers. Yeah. Uh, even though we actually had beers. Uh, but anyway, and, uh, we're, we're going to, you know, we're going to hang out tonight. We'll get some cigars, whatever. Why don't you come and hang out with us for a little bit? Yeah. Okay. I'll yeah. come by. Just start to genuinely, genuinely form this bond and this friendship. Um, and then, you know, I, 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 I want you to finish. I'm just, you know, then it's one of those things where it's like when they're coming out on missions with you, right. And they have to put on a flak vest and they have to put on a helmet and they have to carry a pistol and it's everything else. You know, it's one of those things where it's like, hey, Bubba, listen, don't get out of it. You stay in the vehicle. You know, I don't need you to get out. You stay right here and we'll, we'll take care of everything. If I need you, I'll come get you kind of deal. Because you're actually worried about the genuine welfare of this person who is not trained to protect themselves. Now, in certain cases, you could argue some of those folks in the Middle East are probably have been closer to death than many of us were in combat routinely throughout their lives just because of the, the country that they lived in. But still, it was one of those things where it was like you, you just start to over the course of time, not even recognize and understand why you're developing a friendship with them, but it just happens. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, they were my friends. Um, you know, fast forward to, to now I had dinner with them last night here in Michigan. They they live 30 minutes down the road from me and obviously we'll get to that, but, um, yeah, I mean, you see them every day. They, they would bring us home cooked meals from their wives. Um, we would give them lumber to heat their houses in the, in the winter. Um, we joked, you know, just like we joked with each other, um, and I remember when I, when I went to say bye to them to move on to the next base, um, I was sad, you know, I gave them a hug and I joked and said, you guys should come see me in Michigan sometime. And, you know, knowing that that was never going to happen or didn't think that was ever going to happen. And, you know, we, we, um, I, I held a smile as, you know, we shook hands for the last time, uh, and, you know, with the understanding that we were never going to see each other again, but yeah, they, they were friends. Um, and, uh, I think that's, you know, the relationship, like you said, that, that a lot of us have with these guys. Yeah. Um, and again, it's, it's even with my, see, and again, I, I had a twofold, not only with my interpreter, but even with the Iraqi soldiers I served alongside with, you know, um, the night before I left, they threw me a huge party. They all gave me gifts. There was a lot of hugs exchanged, a lot of, you know, Hey, I'm going to miss you. And, and, and everything else. It was, it was one of those genuine moments where, um, you know, you know, you have to say goodbye, 
uh, and your paths are going to diverge. But, um, you know, there's just a genuine respect and appreciation for each other. That is, uh, it's, it's really hard to describe, um, because mm-hmm. a lot of those guys, again, you know, we saved each other's lives at certain points. You know, we, we all, we all put our lives on the line together and, and that's something that you can't really, you know, quantify or qualify in any way, unless you've done it, um, unless you've yeah. been there with. So, and it's, it's, it's just part of their culture. I think, I mean, Afghan people are some of the most hospitable people in the whole world. And I really mean that. I mean, I'll, I'll well, they're not being tortured, shot at and blown up on a routine basis and threatened with their lives by their government. Yeah. They tend to be very nice people. Yeah, exactly. And you know, I'll fast forward one more time just to share another story. It's, you know, when I was trying to get Abdul and Muhammad out through Abbey gate, um, you know, comms were shit because we, uh, we were jamming signals. Um, you couldn't really get any calls through. So like any call you could get through was extremely valuable. And, you know, they're standing in the shit filled canal for, you know, 14 hours a day. And I finally got a call through to Abdul and, you know, his immediate response when he answers the phone is, Hey brother, how's your family? You know, just like that is ingrained in Afghans. I'm just like, Abdul, shut the hell up. Where are you? Tell me what's going on. You know, like they just literally can't help it. Like that's who they are. Um, so I know you said you were moving on from base to base. Um, when you leave from base to base, is there some sort of verbal commitment and handshake that you guys are going to stay in touch or, I mean, was anything said or you just kind of yep. knew it was. Gonna- yeah, we, um, you know, they had phones, so they had WhatsApp. So we exchanged, what exchanged, uh, WhatsApp numbers, uh, and stayed in touch throughout the deployment. Um, and then, you know, when I got home, uh, sporadically, um, up until the, you know, August of 21, where we started communicating pretty heavily, but yeah, it was intermittent until then. Um, did you feel like, you know, when you got back that, that those relationships would eventually dissipate other than a quick check in here and there? Yeah. Um, cause that's just what happens, right? I mean, when you don't, when you're never going to see somebody again, um, yeah, maybe you check in every once in a while, but I kind of anticipated that that relationship would, would kind of end uh, naturally at some point. So you get home in 21, um, everything's hunky dory, uh, and you decide you're just going to get out after your commitment is up. Yeah. So I got home in 20. So I was over there in 19 and 20. Um, my commitment went until October of 22. Um, but I was just in the reserve. So, you know, it's just, just the weekends at that point. Um, so I kind of just wrote out my career until yeah, last, last October. Um, and then, yeah, the, the time for me, I felt, I felt like I had accomplished what I set out to do. Um, you know, I wanted to serve, I wanted to go to Afghanistan, just, you know, do a deployment and see what that was like. Um, and I did it and I felt like, you know, I had accomplished my goals and I was, I was ready to move on. All right. Um, so you're at home now and still serving when August of 21 rolls around. When does community, does communication pick back up prior to August? Are they starting to tell you, Hey, you guys are leaving kind of deal. We're here. Like, I mean, did you hear about anything before the news had gotten word of it? Um, minimally. Yeah. So, um, Camp Marmol got shut down pretty early on up in Mazar Sharif. Um, so Abdul messaged me just to let me know that, um, he was going to be heading back to Kabul to stay with some family. Um, but the, you know, the gravity of the situation didn't set in because, you know, all our intelligence that was coming out of the U S government coming out of the CIA, whoever, um, you know, showed that the Afghan National Army, the ANA, was going to be able to hold out even without us. Um, so there wouldn't really be any big threat um, to the population of Afghanistan. Obviously, that was way wrong. Um, ourselves. Yeah, but but no, I, I I didn't feel 
a big sense of urgency on anything really other than just saying, okay, cool. Yeah. Hope you're doing well. You know, did he mention anything? Did either Abdullah Muhammad mention anything about wanting to leave Afghanistan? Uh, not at that point. No, because they didn't want to, I mean, they're, that's where they grew up. That's their home. That's where all their family still is today. Um, so these weren't people just looking for, you know, that golden ticket to America. They didn't want to leave their country. When does it start to get to a point where you realize that, you know, action may need to be taken? Yeah. I mean, I was following the situation pretty closely. So Taliban starts taking, you know, perimeter cities. Um, and then it became very clear, very fast, obviously, you know, the whole thing happened, what, in like five days that they took over all of Afghanistan. So it didn't take long to, you know, to, for them to be on the perimeter of Kabul, um, and that's when Abdul called me and he's like, brother, we need help. Like they're coming. Is that exactly what he said? Pretty much. Yeah. He said, brother, I need help. Um, they get all of Kabul is, was his exact words, or they're going to get all of Kabul. What are you thinking when you hear that? I mean, is your first thought like, what, what am I supposed to do? Yeah. I mean, I was sitting right here where I'm sitting right now at my kitchen Island and we were, um, FaceTiming. And I was sitting here with my mother at the time and he called me and he was holding his little baby girl. And, um, at that point it was, it was very obvious that the Taliban was going to take up, take over Kabul. They were going to take the whole country. And I remember it so well. My, my mom was, you know, kind of in the background of the screen and, and she just had to step aside because she was just started crying. Um, because she knew looking at this little girl, that this little girl's life was over. You know, she knew that we all knew that this little girl was going to grow up and was never going to have a job and was never going to go to school and was never going to be able to leave her house um, without a male escort, you know, um, without her whole face being covered. I mean, all the horrible things that you hear about going on in Afghanistan, uh, they're all real. And, you know, it's a lot worse than the stories you're hearing, actually. Um, so that was a tough moment. And, um I remember hanging up the call and I looked at my mom and I was like, I like, I don't know what, I don't think there's anything I can do to help them. You know, what can we do? Um, and that was the point where we started looking into the uh, special immigrant visa, what's, you know, what everyone calls SIV uh, and started going down that complete rabbit hole shit show. Um, that is the special immigrant visa process. Well, what did you find out? Well, it's a very difficult process. Um, so I've said this a few times, even as a American English speaker, it was very difficult for me to figure out. So oh, at, as an Afghan um, who, you know, maybe speaks a little English, but uh, almost certainly doesn't read or write in English, it's, it, it is impossible. I mean, you have to have help to fill these things out. Um, and, you know, a lot of it's translated, but a lot of Afghans can't even, you know, read and write in their own language. It's just there, there just wasn't that education as that generation was growing up. So, um, yeah, it was extremely difficult. And, you know, one of the first steps, like the very first step you have to get is a, um, a human resources uh, recommendation letter from a superior that you actually reported to. And that would be you? No, it wasn't me. Um, oh. So I couldn't write that for him. And he was, you know, they were a little confused as to why I couldn't write that for him. And because, you know, in Afghanistan, like there's rules, but there's always a pretty big gray area. Right. And almost everything over there. Um, United States immigration policy, it's not so gray. It's pretty black and white. So we found out who his superior was pretty quickly. Um, 
I find this guy's email. I email him. He doesn't respond. You know, I explain the situation, who I am, what's going on, what we needed. He doesn't respond. Um, so the next day I send him another email and then finally I get a response from him. And it was pretty much says, I don't think I can help because I'm worried about this, what this could do to my security clearance. And I've never like felt so negative towards a person. Like I just thought it was so gutless that this guy, you know, wasn't willing to put his rank on the table to like help save somebody's life, (laughs) you know, just so pathetic. Uh, And we still, we just saw so many acts of, you know, selflessness throughout that whole digital Dunkirk um, process. um, And those, those weeks in, in August, um, of people putting their ranks on the line to do the right thing. Um, and this guy chose not to. So yeah, gutless is, is the best word I can use to describe it. Um, no argument. Yeah. But, but yeah, we move on. Uh, luckily we were able to find a different superior that did write it and then we're back on track. Um, and then it's just, you know, a million documents. Um, I, I reached out to, um, ask you a question with, with all yeah. this paperwork and everything else and the time sensitivity of the, of the situation, did you feel like you were just chasing your own tail? Yeah. I mean, I knew the documents had to be filled out, so we did them, but you know, I, I reached out to um, Senator Debbie, Debbie Stabenow of Michigan, my Senator, and her team was amazing. Oh, really? But, and, and they wanted to help, but the, you know, they just didn't have the resources to help. And their guidance was, you know, fill out the paperwork, have them shelter at home until, you know, they get a call to go to the airport, knowing that was never going to happen. Right. Um, United States immigration policy does not move that fast in three days. You know, here we are over two years later and they still don't even have their case numbers, neither of them. So, you know, to, to hear them say, have them go shelter at home until their visa is approved, not, not only do case numbers, but approved, it was just never going to happen. So um, I appreciated her support. Honestly, I, I, I believe they wanted to help us um, and did give me some good resources, but they just weren't, you know, they were, they were set up to fail as well. So that was kind of the point where we're like, you know what, we're, we have to take this into our own hands. You know, we'll fill out all the paperwork just so we, we can say we did. Um, but that's not going to cut it. Okay. Um, kind of take me as you're filling this out. Did the actual um, bomb at the Abbey gate happen yet or no? Nope. Nope. Um, so this is, um, this is probably as we're filling this out, maybe five days before the explosion. But we had, um, had 5,000 Marines on ground at that point in time as well. We did, yeah. So the Marines were all there. Um, the whole evacuation was, was starting. Um, and so we were definitely behind. We, we, we could sense that, you know, the, the clock was ticking. Also, you know, when I had heard that this was all taking place at um, Kabul Airport, uh, HKIA, and that was just baffling, obviously, um, because you just wonder why this isn't happening at Bagram. Well, well, obviously it's an easy answer because we gave up, gave up Bagram, but you know, the, there's failures everywhere. Right. And you know, the, the decision to give up Bagram, um, has a couple great working runways and, and great security, um, to go to HKIA with one runway and no security like that, that really was playing through my head. And I was kind of doing the mental math as to, you know, what are our chances of getting these guys out of there? And it just, the math wasn't adding up for me, obviously, um, so that, you know, that gave us a little kick in the ass to, to really get moving and, and try to get them there as soon as possible. Um, as the next, you know, 
24, 48 hours are unfolding. I mean, obviously it feels pretty bleak like you have a chance to get him out. So what are you doing? Yeah, I mean, right away we just made a run for the airport. I was like, you just got to go there and we just got to see what happens. Um, it was a pretty horrendous first day. They got, at Mohammed in particular, got his ass beat pretty bad by the Taliban um, with their with their AK-47s just jabbing them and, and hitting them. And when I ended up seeing him, you know, probably two months later, a month and a half later, he was still heavily bruised and, and, and beaten pretty bad. So he got it real good the first day. Um, but yeah, that first attempt, I mean, they, they got to the airport. Luckily they were able to escape into the crowd after the Taliban was after them. Um, but um, they made it into Abbey gate just kind of by luck, not really knowing which gate to go to. That's just where the crowd was flowing to. And it took them all day to get up to the front. I mean, they had probably been there about 14 hours. Um, and anybody that's, you know, heard anything about Abbey Gate, it was just a complete shit show, packed with people. It's actual sewage water that they're standing in um, and was just a disaster. I mean, kids are getting crushed to death. Um, mothers were throwing their babies over, you know, 12 foot T walls. Their kids are getting stuck in the Constantiner wire. Like just, I, I interviewed a lot of Marines, um, that were at Abbey gate and the stories they told were just so horrendous that you just can't imagine that they were real. Um, uh, but they were. So, um, yeah, they're there for 12, 14 hours the first day they get, you know, within probably 15 feet of us troops, but just can't get anyone's attention. They don't have the proper paperwork. So it's just, we weren't set up for success. And, um, one thing I'll never forget is that sentence. We, as in you guys trying to get, uh, Muhammad and, and Abdul out, or we, as the American people at the gate. Um, at, at this point it was just me trying to help them. So I didn't, I hadn't tapped into any of the like digital Dunkirk network or any of the connections at all. At this point, it was strictly like, let's get there as quick as possible and just see what happens. Okay. So Abdul texts me. Um, and it just says, brother, can I take this moment to go home and hug my family? And that's all it said. And, you know, they had been there for, like I said, 12 or 14 hours. I wasn't going to say no. Like I knew it had been a tough day. I'm like, yeah, man, just take your family and go home. And, um, I felt so bad. Like I felt like I had, you know, really failed them because, you know, here they're 10, 15 feet from American troops. I'm a non-commissioned officer in the U S military, and there's nothing that I can do to help them get into communication with these guys that are standing right in front of them. So that's kind of the point where I realized like I need to, you know, figure this shit out a different way and I need to, you know, find some connections. Um, so that's when I take to the internet and, um, the first people that I hit up were, uh, the team over at zero blog 30, um, the, the, the podcast over there and not really expecting an answer, honestly, cause I, I knew that they were probably getting flooded with messages. Um, but all three of them responded within an hour and, um, introduced me to some great connections that I talk about in the book. Um, but yeah, that, that's really how I got introduced to the, these, uh, group chats and, um, uh, you know, rooms of, of digital Dunkirk people that, we're able to give uh, pass along intelligence of everything you can imagine. I mean, like I always say, you know, each of us came to that chat with like, you know, the name of maybe one person or, you know, the name of the Afghan you were trying to help, but like collectively together, we had a ton of information. So, uh, you know, who was working, what gates, what documents they were taking um, names and phone numbers of people. I mean, just anything you could want. Um, so it was a huge help. Um, so then I felt like, you know, the next day when we made the next run, um, I was a lot more prepared to, to try to help them and get in. Um, you're starting to hear these horror stories and everything else. Um, 
And then you start to get access to this information. At any point in time, did you feel like something bad in, in general was going to happen? Oh, yeah. I mean, we were getting reports on our, our group text saying, um, you know, uh, suicide vest inbound to, you know, Abbey Gate at this time, this time. Like we were getting a lot of warnings. Um, I think there, there was quite a few intelligence officers that had entered the chat. Um, I know at one point I was speaking directly with someone that was working for the CIA. Um, so I, I felt like we were getting pretty good intelligence. Um, I know on the ground they were hearing the same things that, you know, uh, suicide vest probably coming to Abbey Gate. Um, I mean, they even had the description of what the guy looked like, right? Um, Sergeant Vargas talks about it a lot. Um, they knew he was wearing a, a dark, um, I don't know what they call those, those long shirts, um, but it was going to be a young man wearing a dark uh, shirt and he was going to be escorted by an older gentleman. Uh, and obviously he, Sergeant Vargas, um, who was a, a sniper in 2-1 um, weapons company and was sitting in the, the sniper tower at Abbey Gate, believes to this day that he had um, the bomber in his sights. Um, he got confirmation from multiple sources. Everyone agreed that they thought that this was the person that matched the description of the bomber. Um, he called his battalion commander for permission to engage the target. And, you know, that permission was obviously denied. Um, so just, you know, a lot of things went wrong. Um, man, all too real. All right. Uh, um, when did you first hear about the bomb going off? Yeah. So, um, I guess fast forward, we, you know, we end up getting them after another couple failed attempts, um, end up getting Abdul and Muhammad into the airport, uh, which was a whole nother story. But um, that was about probably seven or eight hours before the bomb went off. Uh, and the bomb went off directly where they were standing. Um, I was actually pretty worried um, because I, I had heard about the bomb, like, you know, probably at, in about five minutes after it went off through our group chat. And um, I was worried because, Abdul's brother got left behind and he wasn't able to get into the airport. And um, I just had this sense that, you know, he was probably still there and might not be with us anymore. So I messaged Abdul right away. I was like, Hey, have you talked to your brother Masood? And he's like, no, I haven't heard from him. Um, so I got, I got real scared for a while. Luckily he ended up going home um, and wasn't, wasn't killed, but yeah, I mean, obviously 13 Americans and a um, couple hundred Afghans um, killed. So horrible. Was that emotional for you? Oh, dude. I mean, at this point, I was just so, no, I, felt, had, I felt so had invested. Guys, had your guys inside the, inside the, uh, inside the airport already. So they were yeah. safe from the blast. They were safe, but um, I was so invested at this point. And I remember, you know, the, across the chat, it said, break, 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 mass casualty at Abbey Gate. And everyone knew that it was a suicide vest at that point. And, um, I remember I just put my head down on my desk and I just started crying, dude. And, uh, yeah, my girlfriend came up and, you know, hugged me from behind and because I just knew that it didn't have to go down like that. There was just so many wrong decisions made that led us to that point. Well, sort of not. I I think, I mean, I wasn't as close to it as you were. We all knew it didn't have to go down like that. I mean, it was just, it was cavalcade of bad decisions and failed leadership and, and lack of what you called cowardice or gumption or whatever, uh, to be able to, to say no. Uh, mm-hmm. it's a bad idea. Don't do this, you know? And, uh, if you do do it, I'm out. Right. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. The same, the same courage that it takes to say, "Well, I'm not willing to put my security clearance online." Should have been the same clearance, the same courage that it took to say, "You do this, and I'm walking off this right now because mm-hmm. I'm not going to be responsible for this." And nobody did that. Yeah, everybody got their own jobs. And you know, I had Abdullah was sending me a lot of pictures of Abigate, so I knew like how close these Marines were to the crowd, um, and just how populated and condensed that area was, and surrounded by concrete. Uh, so any blast that went off in there would probably be amplified and. You know, when I first got the message that said, you know, we, we believe there's casualties and I knew it was going to be, you know, a sizable amount. Right. And I knew that there was going to be dead Americans. And I was just so worried that the Marines that had helped me actually grab them out of the gate to backtrack here a little bit. I was I was just hoping that their names weren't going to be on the list. Right. And that kind of felt messed up to say, because I don't want to see any Americans name on the list, but you know, for, for the guy that, you know, went and grabbed the hand of Abdul Muhammad and pulled them over who I, you know, I talked to him on the phone and I was just really hoping not to read his name. Um, and, and, you know, luckily he did make it out of there and, and didn't die, but I was just, I think that was probably the biggest thing I was worried about, um, is what had happened to him. When do Abdul and Muhammad get out? So, yeah, they got out. I want to say on our, like on the third day that we were there. So it was, yeah, it was, just hours before the bombing. Okay. And, um, flight, they were actually on a flight already. Oh no. Uh, yes, 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 they were. Um, they had pretty much just taken off when the bomb, when the bomb went off, but they had been in the airport for several hours at that point. Um, but yeah, I mean, their story of getting in. So that I remember I, I, I got a call, um, and from Abdul and I could hear him, but like, the, the phone wasn't to his face. I could tell I could hear him in the distance. So I could tell that he was like holding out his phone, trying to give it to somebody. And he was yelling at somebody saying, talk to the sergeant, talk to the sergeant, meaning talk to me. And this voice comes on um, and it just says, Sergeant Zelensky, United, uh, United States Marine Corps. And I would do it. I was just so pumped, you know, to hear his voice. And uh, so I quickly just identified myself and, you know, said, you know, who these guys were. And I have them manifested on this flight. Um, You know, their SIVs are pending. We don't have them yet. Please, please help us. And um, Sergeant Zelensky thought that I was actually at the airport. He was like, dude, I don't have the resources to like escort these guys down to state. Can you come down here and grab them yourself? I'm just like, dude, I am in the United States. Like, please. I just begged him to help me. And, you know, he did, he was more than willing. He was like, okay, I'll make sure that these guys get in. Um, so he pulled them in and, and the chaos, you know, I immediately wrote down his name, but it was just such a shit show on the phone that I wrote down Valensky with a V, uh, and his name was Zelensky. So, you know, I go on this like one year manhunt for this guy afterwards. Um, after this whole thing went down, can't find him. And then finally, after a year, I went on um, Northern Provisions Instagram page because uh, they had just put, made a posting about HKIA. So I was just like, hey, does anyone know Sergeant Valensky worked at Abigate at this time? And dude, within like less than 10 minutes, someone was like, do you mean Sergeant Zelensky from 2-1 Weapons Company? I'm like, yep, that's my dude. So within another like 10, 15 minutes, I was on the phone with them and we talked for an hour um, and we were just like both like just crying on the phone to each other. And it, it was it was great. Well, I'm glad that there was at least some smiles um, to be had. Um, How many people, you know, like a guy like Zelensky, how many people did he push through the gate? Like, I mean, yeah, I mean, probably hundreds. I I don't know. I never actually asked him that question. Um, But yeah, probably a lot. And I mean, dude, those guys saw, you know, 
the worst. How many people could get in? How many? The way you got in touch with somebody on the phone at Abbey Gate, I'm sure there were other Marines there on their phones getting same similar phone calls, right? Oh yeah, a ton. Yeah. I mean, people were trying to shove documents and phones in all these Marines' faces constantly. And and they said most of the time, it, you know, it wasn't an American on the other end of the phone. It was just, you know, some random person that could maybe speak a little English just begging them to, to let them in, whether they were qualified or not. Did, um, did any of them resist and say, no, I can't do it? Any of the Marines? Yeah. Um, not to, not to my knowledge. I'm trying to put myself in that scenario because literally I'd be like, who that for you? Yeah, Why are you sure. like, I don't understand. Like I, you have to help me understand how this phone call is actually taking place right now. Sure. Were they, I, I mean, how did they know that what, who you were is who you were and what you were saying was real, especially when the paperwork didn't match. Yeah. I mean, I had a, uh, I had, I did have a flight number that was a real flight number that I had them manifested on. Um, I think, you know, I think he just had to trust me to be honest. I mean, I think he, he could tell I was an American and I, I, I obviously, I think he knew I was in the army just by the way I was saying things probably. I mean, there's obviously a, a, a lingo in the military that's pretty easy to, to designate, but um, yeah, I mean, it, it really probably just came down to trust because they didn't have the documents to get in. So there was really nothing for them to show other than maybe like some certificates of appreciation or just some other, you know, uh, maybe a NATO badge. Um but nothing that said, hey, I have a visa and I'm qualified to come to America. But also at the same time, like almost nobody had that because, you know, these special immigrant visas were taking years, years to process. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was a tough call for them. I, I know it was because and the State Department wasn't doing them any favors either because the, the criteria for what was allowed was constantly changing, they said. And, you know, we kind of we asked these young Marines to play God, right, and decide yeah. who was going to come in and who was, wasn't, who wasn't. Yeah. And, you know, that's a, a lot of them carry, you know, heavy weight of, you know, people they turned, turned away. Um, Sergeant Zelensky, especially, he's told me a couple stories of his first baby was born while he was there. And um, he'll never forget that this mother comes up um, to him on the gate and uh, puts a baby in his arms and he looks down and this baby's dead. And she just turned around and walked away and, you know, he had to hold that dead baby in his arms before he got to hold his own baby. Um, oh, and, God. I mean, he's got a ton of stories of just, you know, having to turn away little kids. And he's, you know, still sees them in his dreams. And I mean, it's heavy shit. You know, they all went through a bunch of horrible things. Um, and I feel for him. And I, I, a big part of me writing this book was, you know, there's a lot of um, heroes that have come out um, throughout this situation and very well deserved all of them. Um, but there's also a lot of people, um, a lot of heroes that whose their names haven't been told yet. Um, so I get the privilege um, to be able to talk about those guys uh, and everything that they did in their time in Afghanistan. So um, really fortunate to be able to tell their stories. After it all goes to shit and everything is, you know, you, we calm down after a couple of days and we get all the American Marines out of there and everything else. What sort of life form does this whole thing take on? Um, how much harder is it now? And what's what are the challenges sitting in front of you? Yeah, so once um, operations at HKI had shut down, um, that actually kind of leads into the, the, the second half of my book. Is um, So my command had found out pretty quickly what I was doing, and um, I got a call from my commander. Uh-oh. And, it, and um, they're like, hey, we, we, have, um, we have a soldier in the battalion 
um, whose family, direct family, mother, brothers, sisters are stuck in Kabul and we don't know how to get them out. Can you help us? And that was kind of the moment where it came full circle for me where I'm like, dude, what the fuck is happening? Like the U.S. government is calling me like an enlisted reservist for help getting people out. Like what is happening? So wait, so somebody who's the person from the U.S. government who called you? Thought, well, well, this, this this is my commander. Okay, it was, um, I just want to make sure. Okay, it was yeah. a, like a, okay when you say yeah, US, yeah. It's just a, sure makes sense. Okay, yeah. So this is my commander. So it was um so the next day I'm in touch with um the the commander of the unit that um this guy his name was um Pyman. So he was an American. He was serving in the U.S. Army, but he was from Afghanistan and his family was still stuck there. Um. So, you know, we try to go through some, some like different rat lines at HKI because all the gates have been sealed. And, um, you know, you had guys like Tim Kennedy and um, some other special forces units like at these secret gates that we tried to get through and um, got close, but, you know, no cigar. And um, so from that point, you know, all of, everyone flies out. HKI is done. Right. And we have to figure out a different route to try to get this next family out. And there's all sorts of crazy options. I mean, all the different NGOs we're coming up with different like overland extraction opportunities and just a, a bunch of wild stuff. So eventually um, through another girl I had been working with through the digital Dunkirk network, her name was Ivani. Um, she had connected with um, Senator Blumenthal uh, and his team of staffers had this plan to um, buy some shuttles, drive them up north to Mazar Sharif through like 14 Taliban checkpoints, uh, put them in safe houses and then try to get them out on um, some private flights up there. So we do that. Um, luckily they made it up to Mazar Sharif through all the checkpoints. Like we had to have them delete everything from their phones and, you know, not carry any paperwork. Uh, so we get them up to the safe houses They're, I mean, they're only supposed to be there for like a day or two. Um, they end up being stuck in these safe houses for like a month as, you know, uh, negotiations with the Taliban um, take place. And the state department is, you know, trying to screw us over, um, not letting uh, flights, you know, land at certain places. It was just a shit show, but yeah, we had to create fake visas for them and everything to get past the Taliban. I mean, it, it was, it was pretty wild. Um, but eventually we were able to get those planes off the ground and, you know, we had the only flight in all of Afghanistan airspace and, um, Another very big victory when we got them out of there as well. Um, when you say big victory, meaning the, 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 the soldier's family, correct? Yeah. Yep. So they're, um, they're here living with him in Ohio now. Um, and I yeah, know. lucky enough to, to get to go meet them and, and share dinner with them. And um, yeah, they're obviously very happy to be here. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, I, I, I'm, I'm with you. Um <laughs> I, I'm, I'm wondering kind of, you know, how are you, how are you doing all this? Um, and at the same time, like living your life, because this seems like it in, takes an enormous amount of time and resources and energy. I was doing nothing else, um, you know, for the whatever, two months, whatever it was, I was doing almost nothing else. Um, my work was great. My, um, my boss really took a, a big, um, burden and, and did a lot of my work for me. Uh, cause obviously I have, have a civilian job as I'm going through this. Um, but they, you know, they realized how important this was, um, to, to me, to them, to, to everybody. So, um, you know, it, it was kind of like in that digital Dunkirk world, it was like, if you're useful, you're getting put to work and we don't care who you are, you know? Um, 
You didn't have to be in the CIA. You didn't have to be in the NSA. You didn't have to be a, a Green Beret to be useful. Um, so it, it was kind of odd because I found myself multi- at multiple times being put in chats with people, you know, working for the CIA or someone communicating directly with the White House. And I was like, how did I end up here? But yeah, that was it, my next question. Like, were there people inside this network that probably shouldn't have been there? Probably. Um, but, you know, everyone I interacted with was there for the right reason, I believe. Well, when I say shouldn't it be, I mean, like there were actual government officials who might've been getting a different set of orders to do X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. You know, the back end, they're doing this stuff to get people. Oh out. yeah, for sure. I mean, absolutely. I mean, like I said, we were yeah. for, for that second family, um, for the, the Pyman family, you know, we were communicating directly with Blumenthal's entire team. I mean, they were like leading the charge on this thing um, after hours. Right. So they were going to work, you know, doing their day job with Senator Blumenthal. And as soon as they clocked out, we're all on the phones together. That's incredible. I mean, I just, you know, it goes to show you that, you know, uh, you know, military folks in general understand the value of mission accomplishment, right? I mean, it's everybody Mm -hmm. working on the common goal and, uh, and getting it done. Um, how do you know when you were done doing it? Like, I mean, obviously you mentioned before, there's still a hundred thousand people there. Yeah. I get, I get messages every single day, multiple people reaching out to me every single day for the past. Oh yeah. I've gotten three today. Now two plus years. What's that? Two plus years since. Oh yeah. Yeah. Over two years, every single day I get messages on Twitter or Instagram or people get my email. Um, at one point during the evacuation, my phone number had gotten leaked on a, um, pretty popular news site on Instagram. I don't say their name because I think they had great intentions, but um, so I, I, back then I was getting blown up a lot. I mean, I, I, I got a couple calls that I think were from the Taliban. I, I don't have any proof of that, but just people calling me screaming at me, very upset um, saying motherfucker is pretty much the only English word I could <laughs> make out. Um, but yeah, I was getting blown up quite a bit back then. And then still today people have my phone number. So, you know, I, I do what I can. Um, I'll, I'll respond to almost everybody and at least, you know, maybe direct them to some resources. But, you know, for the most part, it's, I can't, I can't help everyone, obviously. Uh, where, where is digital Dunkirk now? Is it still yeah, they're still, yeah. I mean, they've really organized into, um, I think it's kind of morphed into a lot of different NGOs, um, uh, that even those NGOs have kind of combined into some bigger, um, uh, entities like uh, Moral, Moral Compass Federation uh, is a entity of a lot of different NGOs that started that were, um, you know, acting individually prior, um, but now they're all working together. So it's definitely still happening. I mean, the evacuation operations are still happening. Um, there's still a lot of fundraising going on. They're still trying to help these people. Um, so the work is still being done for sure. When's the last time you got somebody out? Um, let's see. There's, I mean, yeah, people are still getting out almost every day, not out of Afghanistan. I think most people are getting out through Pakistan now. Um, so people are applying, I mean, there's all types of different visas you can get, you can get an SIV, you can get, um, P1, you can get P2. These are just different names of different visas, uh, humanitarian parole asylum. Um, but I think for the most part, most of the flights are, are going out of Islamabad. Um, so when did you know you wanted to write a book about this? Pretty, pretty early on, probably a few months afterwards, it, it started with me, um, 
you know, I had been doing a lot of fundraising for Abdul Muhammad through Instagram and social media. So everyone knew like kind of what was happening, but no one knew the full story. So I'm just constantly being asked to tell the story. And it's like, you know, in full, it's probably a five hour story. And I just can't keep, you know, going through that every single time. So I found myself telling this story over and over all day. I was like, you know what? as I start telling the story, like the, the timeline starts getting a little fuzzy. I'm trying to like, remember when exactly everything happened. So I was like, I just need to get this down on paper. So I don't like lose track of when everything happened. And I at least have the story for myself. Um, so I just started writing and before I knew it, I had 25,000 words. Um, and it felt like it, it just fell out of me. I was like, you know, I, I really think there's a, a bigger story here. Um, and like I said, just about the guys that I dealt with at age Kaya, uh, I really wanted to tell their story. So a lot of the book is um, from their eyes and what they experienced. Um, so it was a privilege just to get to tell their story. Were they ready and willing to do it? Yeah, uh, not everybody. Um, I think a lot of guys needed some time to process, uh, but I did interview quite a few Marines that were there. Um, and a lot of them, I don't want to speak for everybody, but I, I think a lot of them found it very therapeutic um, to be able to talk to me about the process and to get their stories out. Cause a lot of them, you know, said that they've really been struggling with it and they don't have anybody to talk to about it. And they saw some horrible things. Um, I know Zelensky in particular. Do they blame their leadership or yes. yes. At what level? Um, not, I, I think a lot of them would say, you know, their company commander was amazing. I don't think I found any of them that would say their company leadership was bad. I think when you start getting above that, maybe um, is when you, you'll start hearing things, but especially just at the very top. Uh, and then they have, you know, a, a, a vast disdain for the State Department. They felt like um, the State Department was a hindrance in the whole operation. Um, almost every single Marine I talked to said that they never even saw the State Department guys come to the Abbey Gate. Um, they said that they were only, they were working normal business hours. So, you know, working like nine to five and then they'd shut down operations for the night. It's just like, you know, and I don't, I don't know. I wasn't there, but that's what they said. Um, and that's pathetic if that's true. They got no reason to lie. They don't get anything by lying. Uh, no. And I mean, there's, dude, there's, I mean, there's, felt like there's a ton of lies. I mean, what the DOD says happened there versus what these dudes who are boots on the ground say happened is just completely different. In my book, I do a, a quite a deep dive into the DOD report and what that says versus what these Marines said happened. Uh, and there's contradictions everywhere. I mean, the DOD report says it was not a complex attack. There was no small arms fire after the explosion. Every single Marine I talked to said, dude, we were a hundred percent getting shot at as soon as that bomb went off. And, um, that's what they believe happened. And, and I definitely believe them. So uh, that's wow. I just, I'm surprised, but not surprised. Yeah. Um, I am, I am, I'm, uh, it's a lot to process, man. Uh, I can only imagine it for you and those guys as well. Um, how much they, um, have a lot of bitterness and anger towards the whole situation. Um, because I've said it routinely, you know, I mean, you can take any soldier, airman, marine, whatever it may be, uh, and throw them in the suck and they'll be okay with it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, but in the same respect, if everybody acknowledges the suck is preventable, then why are we here? Exactly. Suck is unpreventable. We understand it, right? If the mission is go clear this house, clear this city, whatever it may be, everyone deals with the suck. No one's mad at it. Right. Because that's part of the mission. Um, but. 
you know, the idea that, that it had to be done the way it had to be done was, you know, uh, yeah, I don't want to. Yeah, I mean, the, ahead, pr- the biggest failure we haven't even talked about yet, actually, you know, we gave up Bagram. We left in the middle of the night without a proper handoff to the ANA. And what happened to all, every prisoner from the Parwan detention facility, which is located inside Bagram, escaped, uh, including the guy who detonated at Abbeygate. We had him. We had him in prison. Uh, and our failures at the highest level um, led him back out on the streets, led him to put a suicide vest around him and um, walk right up to Abbeygate. He had a, a rifle scope on him. We let him go again. And he walks right up and detonates. Ouch. Um, and that's all confirmed. Uh, it's confirmed that we had him in the Par 1 detention facility, 100%. Yes. Um, you know, the, the, t- the part about him being in the rifle scope, that's one, what one Sergeant, Sergeant Vargas says. Um, and a lot of people um, have validated his claim, um, but certainly not the DOD. Oh. Why would they do that? Yeah. That would be accountability. Uh, we're not going to have that at the highest levels. Um, what have you taken away from this whole experience? Um, good, bad, and indifferent. Well, <clears throat> these aren't my words. I've heard someone else say this, um, but I'm going to repeat it because I believe it to be true. I, I've never been more proud of, of, of our boys uh, and girls serving in uniform uh, than what we saw at HKIA and never so disappointed in our government. You know, these, these, these uh, troops were just set up for failure at every level uh, and did their job to the best of their abilities. And, um, you know, a lot of heroes came out of it and a lot of great things come out of it. Um, but we have 13 dead Americans and two over, probably over 200 dead Afghans because of it. So, yeah, I think it, another thing is it just sends such a horrible message to our future allies, right? Like, why the hell would you ever want to partner with the U.S. after this? Because we're going to make all these promises to you if you help us, and then we're just going to hang you out to dry when it comes down to it. And it's just that's that's not to me what um, being American is. So it's just it's just sad that that's what it's come to. Uh, I know you mentioned that uh, Abdul and Muhammad are, are right there with you. Um, what's your relationship with those guys like? Great, they're doing so good. Um, so they have. Um, when they left Afghanistan, they had, let's see, five kids together, all, uh, all under eight years old. Now they've had another, Mohammed has had another baby uh, who's born American, which is very cool. Um, but the kids are, are doing awesome and learning so fast. Uh, last night I went over there for dinner and it was the first time I could have a, a real conversation with all the kids in English, like a full conversation. I was just so happy and so proud of them. Um, just how fast they've been learning, but yeah, they're doing great, man. They, they both have apartments. Um, they all have jobs. They got driver's license and car, a car each. And, um, you know, they're traveling. Um, they went to Chicago for the first time, you know, a couple of weeks ago and we're just fucking blown away to see a building that high. I mean, <laughs> it's been a lot of fun. Uh, all the things that we take for granted, um, you know, teaching them to turn on an oven and just, you know, all the random stuff. They're just like, dang, this is sweet. <laughs> Running water. Um, toilets um, at flush. Yeah. Uh, yeah. How much gratitude have they expressed to you? Oh, huge. Yeah. I mean, they, um, one of the first texts I got from Abdul after he got out is he said, I wish my English was better so I could, you know, tell you how I really felt about you. 
<clears throat> and um, yeah, I mean, dude, they're they're my friends. It's like I don't I don't think that me or anybody else really did anything special. Like, what anybody would do the same thing when you're trying to help your friends, right? If your your good friend asks you for help, you're going to do it. So, um, yeah, they they appreciate appreciate me for sure, and I appreciate them. I mean, they they took good care of me when I was in Afghanistan, so I'm going to take care of them when they're here. Um. Are you mad at anybody? Um, yeah, I mean, I try not to let it be like a political thing because I think there's failures on both sides. Um, but I think there's, you know, there's been a, a real lack of leadership, um, I think, from the current administration about Afghanistan. And I mean, people, you know, people are going to vote the way, you know, they believe and vote for things that they care about. Well, I, I care about this and I care about Afghanistan um, and the things that happened at HKIA. So, yeah, I I am mad, uh, and I don't I don't think that'll ever go away. Um, but you know, the media is turning to different things. I mean, there's so much going on in the world right now. Obviously, you got you know, Ukraine and Russia is already old news, right? So it's you know, Afghanistan is far gone, and I think that's one of the reasons um, that I continue to talk about. That's that's why I have the podcast. Um, I have a podcast called the Afghanistan Project Podcast that I host with a, a tremendous woman named Beth Bailey, who's a um, reporter for the Washington Examiner and Fox News. And we talk all things Afghanistan and evacuation. And we're just trying to keep it, um, you know, in the forefront of people's minds because no one else is talking about it. What do you hope for for the book? Yeah, I mean, I uh, I hope people I think a lot of people just don't know what happened, you know. Um, obviously in the military community, we, like, we know about Abbey gate and we know about the evacuation, but none of my friends did, you know, it, still to this day, a lot of my friends are like, yeah, are we still in Afghanistan? Like what's going on there? Like, they don't know what happened. Um, and that's fine. Like they don't, you know, the war was never at their doorstep. Um, and that's a good thing. And, um, I don't blame anybody for not knowing about a, a far off distant country, um, but I hope people, you know, learn what we did um, to these people, how we left them all behind. Um, and I just I hope that we learn from it and we never do it again. Didn't a movie come out about a, the fall of Afghanistan already? Yeah, there's been a couple. Um, the Covenant is probably the yeah, biggest covenant, one. Right? I think Channing Tatum's. I, I, I only ask that because, again, it's it's bothersome on a certain level that. You know the work that you guys all did was relatively under the cloak of darkness. The work you guys did was a bunch of people who donated their time and their care and their concern and their effort for the genuine reasons just to help other people and didn't get a single dime out of it. And yet corporate America can turn those events Mm -hmm. into a profit for something for their own and, it sort of belittles the things that you guys did. Yeah. I mean, I got Abdul and Mohammed here. Um, and obviously that's, you know, more than enough for me. Um, I, the only thing that bothers me about the movie is, you know, it's sure it's a, it's a great movie to go I mean, watch. It? Yeah. I saw it. Um, oh, I didn't watch it. Yeah. It's, there were so many real stories they could have told. But instead, they just wanted to be the first ones to to get there and and put it out. So they made one up. <laughs> uh, so that's what bothered me. Yeah, this this seems like it could happen. Let's just do that. Yeah, exactly. So 
it is what it is. That's Hollywood. Yeah, it is. Um, I just, you know, in the vein of the efforts that you guys have made, noble, heroic, courageous, um, you know, all the things that you want your American soldiers and airmen and Marines and sailors to be, mm-hmm. uh, you guys were. And, uh, well, you know, anybody else trying to pass that off as their own, I think is fraudulent. Sure. No, well, I appreciate you saying that. And there's, there's a, there's other great books out. Um, I almost positive that maybe one or two of them are going to be made into movies, which is going to be great. Um, but you know, some other great books, uh, always fail by Tom Schumann. I think, I know he's been on your show before, uh, saving Aziz, Chad Robichaud. Um, he was, you know, on the ground there with, uh, Tim Kennedy and, um, Nick Pomachano. Um, Pineapple Express, Scott Mann, great dude. I mean, there's there's a ton of great stories out there. Um, Scott Mann's coming on the show next week. Is he good? Oh, dude, you're gonna have so much fun. Yeah, he's a great guy, and he's got. Well, he's gonna make my story seem uh, dumb, so he's got a great one. <laughs> uh, but uh, no, I don't think it's that at all. Um, yeah, you know, Michael. Again, I, I gotta. Um, it's it's overwhelming, you know. I've, I've told hundreds of stories on this show, and and you know, so often um, it's about the individual's fight in combat, and and that kind of is the theme. More often than not, most of the episodes save gold stars and a couple of um, you know individual episodes that were told for a specific reason. Um, this sort of fight that you have is. Um, for some reason, I just I, I can't shake the fact that there were so few people willing to help. Like I know in your circle, what you guys did, you were amazed at how many people stepped forward to help. But in the grand scheme of things, this was an effort that re, that needed more help at a higher level, at a bigger level, uh, unlike anything we've seen before. And it fell on deaf ears quickly. Yes. And that is... As you said before, it's sad. It's disheartening. It's it's all the things you don't expect when you look at that flag and those stars and stripes. You expect that level of commitment um, from us, and we didn't give it. Mm-hmm. And you know, it, it, what, what history is told by the winners, whatever it may be, or whatever the phrase is. Um, yeah, uh, this history isn't going to be told enough because we didn't do the winning. Uh, and, and on the flats, on the, on the other side of it, there's not enough of a voice to tell everybody how much we actually didn't do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, I think it also says a lot about our veterans. So, I mean, well, yeah, I think, yes, the flip side was, right. go ahead, please expound. Well, it was unreal. Yeah. I mean, just like I said, so proud, um, to be a veteran, um, that, you know, when, when our government, um, dropped the ball, our veterans stepped up, uh, and grabbed the ball and kept moving forward. Yeah, and I, I, all you guys deserve a, a a huge pat on the back and a huge thanks um, for doing what is right uh, in the in the face of, for lack of a better term, almost contravening orders, um, and in the face of resistance from higher that didn't want to take this on, um, you held to the simplest maxim that we've held to uh, since the day you put on the uniform, and that's integrity, mm-hmm. uh, and and you know. Uh, I, I, I'm in awe of the whole thing. I, I really am. It's just, um, 
not often speechless on this show, but you got me in a spot where I'm not really sure how to encapsulate it all. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> I mean, really, I just, uh, I, 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 I think part of it is just disappointment and I'm trying to be tactful with my words and, and, um, make sure that I am, am, am expressing the right way. Look, that, there's nothing wrong with me saying publicly as somebody still wears a uniform and disappointed in my leadership and I'm disappointed in the choices that were made. Um, in the same respect, I'm a soldier and I do, you know, I follow the orders of the officers appointed over me and all that stuff that I took in my oath of office. I still believe this to this day. That doesn't mean I, I can't disagree openly with what decisions they made, but um, it's not personal. It's business. It's not about Republican, Democrat. It's not about right wing, left wing. It, it's about the right thing. Right. And it's the only R that should matter is right or wrong. It should be R and W and what is right was simply to help the people who helped us. And uh, it's, it's shameful that we didn't do it. Um, that's it. You know, uh, I, I can't say it enough. Right. Again, the book is called death at Abbey gate. Um, you guys, it's being published by Castle publishers in London and uh, it'll be available to order on any, any platform. Yep. Yep. So um, life and death at Abbey gate um, out for presale now, anywhere you buy your books. Uh, and then the, the official release is February 15th. February 15th. Well, I'll be looking forward to it. Uh, I, I fully expect an autographed copy. I kid. Absolutely. You got it. <laughs> uh, it's a, a, just a, an unreal story. All right. Well, listen, keep it up. Uh, I, I hope behind the scenes, there's more and more work left for you guys done to, to do and you keep doing it and, and get it done and um, continue to carry that, that, that flag for all of us, man. Um, this was uh, an incredible journey that you guys have put a lot of people on and, and literally saved lives thousands of them day by day by doing all this. Uh, and, and it doesn't, doesn't get much of a higher calling than that. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, thanks for saying that. And thanks so much for having me on the show. It was a great conversation. Appreciate it. Michael Cook. Thanks for being part of the hazard ground. Thank you. You've been listening to the hazard ground podcast hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.